You're listening to MHD Off the Record South LA Highlights, where I, Siobhan Taylor, speak with local organizations, small businesses, and individuals doing amazing work in South LA who we feel deserve to be uplifted and highlighted, while of course keeping you informed of the resources available in our community. On this episode, we speak with Hiram Sims, a poet, essayist, and creative writing professor from South LA. He is the founder of the Sims Library of Poetry, which has the mission to serve, educate, and find love for poetry, especially for marginalized people of color in the community of South Los Angeles. He is a graduate of USC with a BA in creative writing and a master's of professional writing in poetry. In addition to teaching, he has published three collections of poetry and a creative writing textbook titled These Pages Speak. Enjoy the show. Okay, so first off, I have to talk about the first time I saw you perform poetry. Okay, all right. This was actually during we, we that our college era was pretty much the era of deaf poetry jam, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. slam poetry and all the fun stuff. Yeah, and I remember the first time I saw you, it was at that underground cafe at USC or where we both attended called Ground Zero. Ground Zero, yeah. And I don't even remember what the poem was exactly, but yeah. I just remember you had the entire place ripping with laughter. <laughs> I think you even quoted a Dave Chappelle line in there somewhere. That probably happened. You know, like, <laughs> that definitely probably happened. And USC was a, a great place for poetry for me, you know, because, number one, I got a chance to I, I meet, like, poetry professors you know i had a professor named david st john and he was the first actual poet i ever met it's uh to me like taking his class which was like intro to poetry was like let's say you played like connect for your whole life right and you you know at parties and then all of a sudden you found out like there was a league <laughs> you know, like, you Yo, know, like, by the way, I kill and connect for it. So oh, nice. I, I, I feel this metaphor play. already. Yeah. And so then just it's like a like, poet giving us a metaphor before we even get in good. But exactly. Go and then there was just like, and then imagine there was like regional championships and then national and then worldwide connect for extravaganza. Like, so, you know, meeting him and being at USC kind of taught me that these different areas of life that you love, you know, and that are focused on that what might be a hobby to one person is a serious career for other people. So I think meeting a lot of artists there and also just like really having fun with it, you know, like and being silly at times and, uh, you know, just clowning people. It was, I loved it. You know, it was, it was a lot of fun, but we put on so many poetry events that were very bootleg. Like we would, we would like bring computer speakers from the dorm room, and somebody bring a laptop, and like that was the DJ. You know, like oh, wow. you know, like we would get a classroom reservation. And that's before computer speakers was as fire as they are now. Yeah, it was not back then. <laughs> the Lexmark speakers oh, were wow. not. Oh wow! Yes, not, I remember those. It was not. You know, they were not very good. And we were DJing from like Winamp or like Windows Media Player. You know, like, <laughs> and we would just get a find an empty classroom, and we would just get a bunch of people and like two or three poets, and we would just do our thing. So. 
So yeah, those are good memories. Those there are two things that you said that definitely speak to what you do now and who huh. you are now. Huh. One of those things you highlighted was what's one person's hobby is a career for someone else or yeah. base or lifelong aspiration even, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing you're talking about is having janky equipment <laughs> <laughs> and basically having to create a space in yeah. order to perform and reflect the art that was inside of you all and giving space for people to listen. Yeah. So you do that now. This is that's literally what you did. You went from the Lexmark computer speakers to having your own space where you can host your own events. Yeah. In fact, before you even had your current library, you were doing it at your house. Yeah. That's how dedicated you are. And you did make this something that's your life. You know, like, so we're across the street from the world stage, right? Um, in this recording studio. And so the world stage was started by Kamal Daoud and Billy Higgins. And so Kamal Daoud was in this documentary in the 70s called Life as a Saxophone. It was a documentary about him as a poet. And he said something in there that really, like, touched my soul. He said, I do believe there is a place for me and my work in this world, even if I have to create that space. And that's what some of us have to do. You know, like, we have work that we want to do, and we have to go about, you know, putting the pieces together so that we can make the space that we want to create. And, you know, like the original, the original Sims Library of Poetry was actually in a, uh, a suitcase that I bought from Ross from, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> for $29.99. Shout out to Ross Dress for Less. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you want to be a little bit fancy, but you don't have a lot of money, like that's the spot to go to. But I bought a, I bought a suitcase and uh, I had started a class for people from the neighborhood, people from CDA. Um, but in USC gave me classroom space for free. And so I, during year three of that class, I required that every student read a book of poetry every week. And a lot of them were not doing it. And so I was like, why? They were like, we can't find poetry books. Um, I didn't believe them. I was like, did you go to the library? They were like, yeah, we didn't find any. So I went to the library across the street, uh, off of the one off of 36 in Vermont. Okay, by yeah. by the with the Taco Bell. Yeah, uh huh. Okay. So oh, I the went Mary over Mac there. at the time it was the Mary McLeod Bethune branch. Yeah, and so I went in there, and there was actually no poetry section. So I was like, oh, which is quite crazy, right? So I put eighty of my own poetry books in a suitcase that I got from Ross, and then I drug it to USC every Monday night. You know, that was when the class met, and students would put a book in and take a book out. And one of my students said, oh, this is the little Sims library of poetry right here. And so I actually wrote that on the side of the suitcase. And um, every week, students would put a book in, take a book out. And then from there, uh, the, next, the next year, um, I was playing around in my backyard with scrap wood. And I uh, built a bookshelf, just a little, you know, bootleg uh, <laughs> bookshelf. <laughs> And then I looked in my garage, and there was, like, a bunch of crap in there, right? And we weren't even using it. So I was like, you know what? I bet you I can build a wraparound bookshelf. And so me and my brother went to Home Depot, bought a bunch of wood, and we built these shelves that wrapped around the whole garage. And so then I put 
my 300 books on them shelves and the shelves are so big it looked like I only had six books of poetry. So on my birthday, July 6, 2019, I called every poet I knew. And I'm like, we're having a big poetry get down in my backyard. And I'm opening uh, a library of poetry in my garage called the Sims Library of Poetry. Please bring your books. And so they did. We built a stage in the backyard. Uh, if, you, if you come to the Sims Library of Poetry now, there's pictures of all this. And so um, we we built a stage. We made a little like four seat computer lab on the on the other side of the garage. And so poets just started showing up with boxes of books like. And so at the beginning of the day, we had my 300 books of poetry. And by the end of the day, we had 2000 books of poetry and the shelves were all the way full. So that really taught me an important lesson that, you know, people that are like-minded and working together, you know, can can pool their resources together and create anything, you know. And so we had we had created a library in the garage, you know, um, off of just our individual collections, right? This person had 15, this person had 25, this person had 50. And but together, you know, we had a library. And wow. so, you know, um, what makes that really dope is that it's in LA and people don't think of Los Angelinos in that way. Yeah. We don't, we definitely don't get that sort of shine or under like that. They, we don't get the consideration of being community. Yeah. People don't see us that way. They think Hollywood, of course, even yeah. though that has nothing to do with us from South Central, <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, that's a perspective many have. So to hear that, the community aspect of this is really beautiful on top of the fact that you had a small vision, but everyone came together and that vision got bigger. Yes, absolutely. And, and even while I was building the bookshelves in my garage, you know, like I could in my mind very clearly see the larger version of the Mm. library, you know, like I could see where the shelves were going to be, where the computer lab was going to be like a little art gallery section, you know, a theater space, a bookstore, you know, um, but I really believe in uh, starting where you are, you know, and and the notion that like every living thing has to grow, you know, um, that's the job of every living thing is to grow. But but we all want to be grown, <laughs> you know, like from the beginning, you right. know, like I've, I wanted to be a grown man when I was like two. <laughs> Were you man, man? I don't I don't remember that nickname, uh, but I wanted to be a man, you know, like and uh, so I just feel like in these goals that we have, you know, it's important that we start where we are and then we consider where we are as the stepping stone to where we're trying to go. So let me ask you this. So we're clear for the listeners. What is a poetry library? Like, what is it for? What does it do? Well, a poetry library uh, operates in the same sense that a lot of oper- that a lot of libraries operate. It's a place where you can go and check out books, and you could either stay there and read them, or you can take the books home and read them. But there's also events that happen at the library. There's also computers at the library. There's places for people to. You know, just like sit down, relax as an outdoor space for people to like just if they want to have conversation or if they want to read outside. We have a private writing room like the libraries we had at USC, 
Remember, like yes, you can, you know, you could just go in there. Maybe you in a study group or just you by yourself. Exactly. You can go in there and be left alone. And so, uh, but we also have lots of performances at the library. So there's open mics that we have. We have lectures on poetry. We have classes on poetry. We got, you know, uh, all these different things that circumvent the art and the genre. And so, it's a it's a really it's a really special place. But I'll tell you something that uh, a woman said to me because, you know, coming from like the academic community, one of the things that we were taught is just like to study. Like, and I know that's a general term, but what I mean is like studying other people's work before you do your work. So those books that we had to read, and then we got to write an essay about someone else's work. You know, like, think about that in the context of like, oh, you got to write an essay on like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or, you know, like stuff that we hated to do. But you had to study someone else's creative work and then create a work of analysis based on that, right? So in, in one sense, that creativity was, was creating your creativity. But in other sense, it was, it, was, it was based on what someone else had already made. So I spent about six months studying other libraries. And so I went to five different libraries, some public, some private, and I asked questions like, what, what parts of this place do people use the most? You know, what parts of the place are kind of useless, like that nobody takes advantage of? And so I, I went to the library at the L.A. Film School, which is a very small library. And she told me something that was really powerful. She said, a library is a place for people to do their work so that you have to make sure there are resources there for people to do their own work. So I would say that that's one of the things we thought about in the creation of our library. We wanted it to be a place where people can come write their poetry or come read books that we had at the library or just come, you know, goof around on Netflix, <laughs> <laughs> which is how a lot of people use libraries, you know, like. And to uh, be fair, sometimes what others might see us goofing around might be others' way of gaining inspiration. Booyah. And research, you know, like I remember watching The Godfather 2 in the USC library as a part of a, a research project I was doing. So, you know, it ain't. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do that, too. I would pick the projects where I get to watch the stuff that I wanted to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love that concept. I never actually thought about it that way. But it's right. It's a space for others to do their work. Yeah. But you providing the resources and even services. You said you have classes. Yeah. So people can do that. So why was that important to have in South L.A.? You know, um, I think it was the location of the library was important because that's where my family lived. You know, um, before it was a library, it was my wife's preschool. And my wife, uh, you know, rent, rented out the building and she wanted her own children to go to this preschool. And then she wanted you know, her her friend's children to go to the preschool and the children that she would just meet at the grocery store. And so um, once the pandemic hit and the preschool shut down, you know, she offered the space to the library. You know, she's like, take over the bills and you can, you can take the library from your garage into that space, to which we were very happy to do that. 
Uh, but we were looking at other buildings and other spaces. And what I have found is that, you know, like this neighborhood is an incredible place with brilliant people. Facts. You know, like yes. brilliant black and brown people. And at the library, we created these two shelves to represent the people that actually live in the neighborhood where the library is. So we have a, a Latinx shelf and an African and African-American poetry shelf. So we got books directly from the continent and then books, you know, by African-American poets and then books by people who live in this neighborhood. So, so you have local artists yeah, also contributing to this space. Many, many local poets in the library. And I really believe in like culturally relevant literature, you know, because I had an experience. I read a book by a, uh, a L.A. writer. Her name is Jalandra Davis. She's a professor at Cal State Dominguez. And so I met her at the world stage. So she had a um, she had published a book called Butterfly Jar. And the main character of this book was nine years old during the L.A. riots. And. I was nine years old during the L.A. riots, and I never read a book like in I've read probably hundreds, if not thousands of books. I never read a book that had the word Normandy in it. <laughs> you know, like good point. Vermont, Adams, you know, like, you know, I, that really blew my mind. You know, like that that a work of fiction could take place in my city and be that culturally relevant to me. And I think that's what happens when people read the books that come out of their own neighborhood is that they start to see reflections of themselves in the literature that they're reading. And that's important. Absolutely. And it actually lends to the idea of how often growing up in school, I was think I was, I was very, very blessed in that I had a, a particularly English teacher that made sure that the books we had in our class were also culturally relevant, not mm -hmm. just the books that we were required to read by the state. Yeah. Um, but I, I know not every student has that access or has a teacher like that. Yeah. And so a lot of times, and this is from my experience, even working in schools, you'll get young people who completely disconnect from the content. Yeah. Even if it's a good message and all that's great, but they yeah. don't feel like it connects with them. Yeah. And I would actually lend, I actually lend to lend that to the part of the reason why we do have some literacy problems in school. I think it's partial. I think it's a lot of reasons. It's not just um, the, the content. I think there's a lot of reasons, a lot of structural reasons, a lot of, yeah. you know, uh, um, systemic reasons. But I do think artistically speaking, when young people don't feel connected to the material, yeah. it's hard to engage. It's hard to feel like it's a part of you. And one of the things that I was doing when I was doing research um, for this particular interview, I came across this stat that stunned me. But according to the data from the California Department of Education's California Assessment of Student Performance and Progress, only 35% of black or African-American students and 41% of Latino students in LA County meet or exceed the standard grade level in English mm. language arts. Wow. Wow. So this is, at first I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, that our, in L.A. County, in general, the number is very low. I thought maybe it was a lot of the language issue because people come from different countries and maybe that was a problem. But that doesn't necessarily explain the black and African-American numbers yeah. because the majority of the black people in L.A. are African-American and we have the worst numbers of literacy in mm. the entire county. Mm, mm, mm. And that shocked me. So when I hear numbers 
like this? I know it surprises me. Does it surprise some? Does it surprise you being someone who actually has a degree in writing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and from LA County. <laughs> you know, it it surprises me and it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me because, you know, I think the I think those statistics reflect like the culture of Los Angeles, and when I th when I think about that there's a culture of like entertainment and there's a culture of speed. This is what I mean. I'm not saying like we drive fast, right? I'm saying that but the haters was ready to say that. Too. You know it. <laughs> I'm saying like the frequency that you have to get to, to read a book is not the frequency that we operate on in the mm. city. Normally, like think about the type of like pace you would have to slow down to, you know, like to read an article. Like if I'm if I'm gonna read a book, I have to be in a quiet space, typically, probably alone, and not distracted. But I feel like with this culture of like apps, phones, notifications, like what are you doing? Where you are, people constantly hitting you up. And I think I think young people in LA County and in the country deal with that. You know, I feel like you got like 50 businesses in your pocket, you know, like if you got a phone that are constantly trying to vie for your attention. At least 50. Yeah. Right. So I think it's, I think it's not just about uh, a failure of, you know, teachers, right. Or schools. I think it's for the really, record. I didn't blame teachers or schools. Just yeah. I'm make, just, <laughs> just to but, make sure that's clear. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's about like, you know, like the, the culture of this city and the culture of Americans, you know, like, cause we rarely, we are rarely slowing down enough, you know, mm. to, to read and to, and to have conversation about what we read. It's something I deal with my children right now. You know, I have six children and as soon as they get home, they go straight for a screen, you know, like it might be the TV screen, it might be a laptop screen, it might be a phone screen, it might be an iPad, but like I have to very consciously say we're taking an hour <laughs> to step away from all screens and we're going to go outside and do whatever we're going to do. Maybe you're going to play, you want to talk, you want to sit, but I feel like uh, families in this city have to make a conscious effort to uh, to get to that frequency, you know, to get to that speed where you can read a book and what has developed. And I think it actually did develop in our generation, although you and I were able to, you know, uh, get to the places where we are and where we've been. I think that, you know, the, I don't know. I just, I just feel like we developed a fear of books mm. and the fear is connected to the time that our brain thinks it'll take to read it. Because if I read, let's say, I don't know if I get on my phone and I like read an article like, and, and, and a lot of people don't like to do that for fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if I read an article, that's like, you know, like, two pages I can read that maybe in like 15 minutes right you're talking about uh, a 400 page book that's like four days you know like if you if you're reading every day so that some people that might take them two weeks right mm -hmm. but I think it's about 
this culture of like we got to do everything fast. So the ability to sit still yeah. and calmly focus on one thing yeah. is almost daunting. And and I will say, I am actually I, something I currently struggle with. Yeah. Partially, you know, well, not partially. I have ADHD, so that's okay. part of <laughs> that. Okay. Definitely uh, makes it a challenge. But also, I think I also struggle with being able to just calmly read anything because my yeah. my brain goes there's all these other things i need to be doing yeah. and i partially think capitalism has a lot to do with that too yeah. we're always having to work your yeah. phone doesn't allow you to not work i can't be like hey i'm too busy because i can do whatever i got to do on the phone right yeah. so yeah. I, I think i think you're really raising a really accurate point which is we don't really have the same culture of just chill yeah. and relax and it, which i think is more conducive to people people like me who do need to be busy because then I have a space where I can go, okay, I can actually calm here. I can yeah. actually retreat here. Uh huh. But we don't really do that. I know I currently don't do that enough. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's why you have the Sims library poetry. Yes. Right. So, and that's what we encourage. That's why we wanted to, we had spent, uh, you know, like it was like $3,500 on these outdoor couches. Right. And everybody First of all, I've never spent that much money on. <laughs> I've been going to Craigslist ever since I was 18 years old. So I'm used to paying like $100 for a couch, right? But, you know, we, we wanted to get this like really nice outdoor furniture that kind of mimicked the, you ever been to the furniture section at like JCPenney oh, or yeah. Sears, right? And it's, the furniture looks so nice, you just want to sit down. Absolutely, especially right. if you've been shopping. Yeah, right? <laughs> and so uh, so we wanted to create this area where we just, we're, we're constantly trying to encourage people to just like sit down and open a book and read it and just, you know, be patient with yourself and with what you're consuming because... Like I said, I think I think it has to do with the pace and uh, and and the culture. Also, I I think there's also something to be said not just about reading content that's you know connected to you, but also being able to create uh-huh. and having that you know encouragement. I remember when I was actually at USC, um, I took a, one poetry class. Oh, nice! Intro to poetry with Professor Wallach. Okay. And. Um, after taking that class, we actually came up with an idea to do something called Poetry in the Community because okay. I was working at Watts at the time, okay. and I wanted to take poetry back to Watts. I didn't really know how to do that. I was like, "How do you? What do you? What do you do? How do you do it? You know, huh. what is this huh. thing?" Huh. But we were able to actually pilot a program that um, the Joint Educational Project on the campus, JEP, was nice. able to replicate. Nice. So what we did was, I did it as an independent study. What we did was, we came up with uh, activities and. Um, kind of like mini courses for the young people that I was already working with in Watts. Okay. And so we had little, you know, little exercises. Okay. And it was so amazing to watch these kids come alive. Because yeah. this, these were kids, by the way, who's to be in the program, you had to have, and this wasn't because of USC. This was actually a program I was already working for. Uh, I was able to kill two birds with one stone. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we the kids were um, children of incarcerated parents. Wow. And children who uh, were in kinship care and foster care. Uh, about 90% of my children came from the Jordan Downs Housing Projects because the school was right across the street from the housing projects on Grape Street. Wow. The, and this is during the gang war wow. between bounty hunters and um, Grape Street wow. gangs, which are two different housing projects for people who don't know. And this was a big, this was a pretty heavy war during this time because pe- some of my kids were losing people in their life. Wow. 
So when we introduced this project, it was actually during the time when the kids were on lockdown on the campus, meaning they couldn't go outside and play mm-hmm. because that's how dangerous the war was. Wow. And so we did this, I'm saying we, but really it was me. Um, me and a couple of the volunteers I had, we would do these exercises with the young people and some of the most beautiful things came out mm. of this group. And these are kids who've been highly traumatized, yes, right? Yes. In, in a multitude of ways. And one of the poems, as I was uh, putting together one of the books for this series, because I took all the k- children's poems and put them in a little mini book, there was a child who was no longer in my program. Um, he was actually taken out of the program before I got there. Hmm. And, but he was, into, he was always in some trouble on the campus. He was in second grade. Yeah. He was, when I say in some trouble, like big trouble. He would do things like, you know, after school, push over the, the guy with the cart with the chips. Wow. And, and still chip that. Yeah, he was that kid. Wow. Um, this is a very highly traumatized community, <laughs> when I say. So he, he had been through a lot. This little boy had been through so much before the age of seven. Like he'd been through a lot. And he had one day came into the office during class. I mean, I got kicked out of his class for which I already have an issue with kicking children out of classrooms, but that's a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he comes to my office looking for someone else, but while he's waiting, he sees me doing this poetry book. Mm-hmm. And he says, can I write something for it? I said, of course. I'm not going to tell a kid no. Yeah. Not for that, you know? And so he writes this poem. Second grade. Beautiful handwriting, by the way. Wow. And, a, and a little mini picture next to it of a little, like a little blob or like a little boy that was kind of shaped like a blob, okay. but inside of a cell, huh. like a jail cell. Wow. And his first line of his poem was, living in Watts is like living in jail. Mm. Second grader. Mm, mm, mm. I was blown away. <laughs> Beautiful poem. And when I saw that, I was heartbroken because it was a very sad poem. It wasn't a happy poem. Yeah. But also like, wow, look at what this child can express in this way, in very artistic way. And yeah. especially for someone who I felt like everyone in the school kind of was pushing away and throwing uh-huh. away. Uh-huh. I was so excited. I took the poem and the picture, walked him back to class, because the person who was waiting for it never showed up. I guess she was in a meeting. And so I walked him back to class, and I told the teacher, mm-hmm. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. And the teacher told me, that's his problem. All he want to do is sit around and draw pictures and write poems all day instead of doing his math. <laughs> Roll her head and everything. Wow. And I was like, I, my jaw dropped. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah. But that was the moment also that I realized how powerful that was for him. Uh-huh. That was his moment to express. Uh-huh. And I think about how many children, our young children in our communities, are experiencing so much trauma, mm. but they don't know how to express it. And yours, what you do, I think, is a powerful thing because it offers a space where we can now give our youth a place to express. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've had a lot of lots of young people from the community come to the open mics at the library and perform. And one of the things that you were talking about, you know, um, just made me ask a question: like, how could you not grow up in L.A. and not be traumatized? You know, uh, <laughs> that's just because of. And we have different levels of trauma, of course, right? Absolutely. Based on what's happening in the community that we live in, but I'm like, you know, like if you go to the hamburger spot. And then there's murder candles in front of it, you know, like, yeah. and you're trying to get a hamburger. I mean, you know, somebody got shot right here, you know, like, in what way does that affect how we navigate through a community, through the neighborhood and, and, and what we, what we feel And my, my book has a lot to do with that. You know, I call my book like a love letter to South Central, but it really is a book that that's dealing with the, with 
with love of where you're from, but also the trauma, right? That goes along with what you see, even if you don't experience it directly, you know, like, and being, you know, like being, being beat up, you know, in front of a, you know, bus station is different than watching someone get beat up in front of a bus station, you know, like, but, but both of those people are having a, an experience to, you know, That's to a, a fact. degree, you know, in so. fact, if the trauma, regardless of how you experienced it can also have different impacts. Yeah. Two people can have the exact same trauma or experience and one person walk away just fine and the other person be completely traumatized. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, question also, in what way can writing and language arts play in uh, addressing some of the things that our young people are going through? Or cause you, like you said, it's hard to grow up here and not be traumatized when you have so many oppressive factors yeah. that are taking place, even though many of our organizations and community members are doing, you know, the best they can to try to save and support us in our community. Cause I think I had a lot of great support also in my community, but it was also a lot of things that were just even beyond our control. Yeah. How can writing and creative writing and language arts help us, help us connect or even help us heal? I think, you know, someone asked me a question. I think it was the, the city librarian that's over, all the LA public libraries, he came to visit the Library of Poetry. His name is John Zabo, and uh, he works at the Central Library in downtown LA. And, uh, you know, he asked me a question about, like, you know, what was my dream for what the library could do? And one of my answers to his question was that I wanted the library to be a place that validated the part of a person that wants to write poetry, you know, because oftentimes the, the parts of you that are wanting to be honest and wanting to be eloquent are invalidated, you know, like by, by the people around you, by your friends. But I was just like, I, I can't tell you how many poets I know or just people I know that got like three poems in their shoebox, you know, like in their closet, got 10 poems like buried underneath, you know, uh, uh, somewhere in a composition book underneath their bed, right? It seems to be something that people need to do to express their experience, but it's something that they sort of hide from the public. So I think we, I wanted the library to be a place that like honored and validated the part of people that wants to uh, express their experience that way. But one of the things that I feel like is so valuable about writing and about being in environments that are encouraging you to write is that, for me, writing is the journalism of an individual human life, meaning that it is a way for people to record their own stories their own experiences. And when I look at the writing that I wrote in college or the writing that I wrote in middle school, it is really like a, a, a time capsule, you know? And I think every person should be capturing their life in one way or another. And so the same way that someone else might take pictures of what's happening, right? You know, and a picture being you know, an image of a moment, I consider like writing to be a picture of a thought, 
you know, a picture of a state of mind that you were in or rather a perspective that you had on a particular day, a particular moment. And so that to me is what's so important and what 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 writing spaces have to offer, you know, the message that what you have to say, what you have to express and what you have to record about your life is important, you know, whether whether that recording becomes a part of a history book or not, you know, like, cause they already wasn't checking for our history, <laughs> you know, like right. in, the, in the 10th grade history class, like right. no, nobody was talking about Kamal Daoud or, you know, uh, nobody was talking about CD8, you know, they were talking <laughs> about George Washington and right. Thomas Jefferson and other slave masters exactly. that <laughs> became prominent figures in the country. So, but that's why I like to go to people's house and, you know, you look at when they when they have, you know, I feel like our parents have like photo albums, yes. you know, like underneath the TV. And, you know, it was kind of like this is our history. So I feel like writing has that power, but writing also has that power to resonate because when when I read Jalandra's book, it let me know, oh, there was a nine-year-old girl having the same experience that I was having as a nine-year-old boy going through mm. this very political, traumatic event, you know, like that happened in our city. So, I yeah. love that. I absolutely love that. Where is your library located and when can we come visit? So the library address is 2702 West Florence. And the library is open. Um from 9.30 to 3.30 every weekday. And then on the weekends from 2 to 8 p.m. And almost every Saturday we got a poetry event going on. And even this coming Saturday, there's a like uh, Asian American Poets Night. But if you come through on a Saturday at 6, there's probably going to be somebody performing poetry there. Oh, nice. Do you have any particular events or classes coming up? Yeah, so we teach a, a, a poetry. We have two poetry classes. One is called the 44 class, and it's for people who are, like, beginners, like, super brand new, like, haven't wrote a poem since they were in, like, third grade, and so they could come and take that class. And then we have a, a program called uh, Community Literature Initiative, and those are publishing classes for poets who want to publish books. And so typically those are more seasoned poets that um, already have like at least 40 pages of poetry. And it's a two semester class. And then uh, at the end of two semesters, we also do like cover design, layout design, barcoding. So on the last day of class, the students walk out with their book in their hand and uh, an opportunity to pitch their book to some publishers. What? So, yeah. So, so you are connecting people with careers. Yeah. So it's not just, hey, take a class real quick. It's take a class, then take a class, then get your book published. That's right. That's <laughs> I love right. it. And they can learn more about their program at communitylit.org. And so we got a, we got a, a chapter at the library, one in one at USC, one in Inglewood, one in Long Beach, one in San Bernardino, one in Austin, Texas, East LA, and we got a national check class too. So it's growing. Wow. It's, it's oh, it's growing. growing after you just listed like 20 <laughs> locations. Um, that's beautiful. And I'm 
Definitely glad to hear that. And I'm very proud of you as a fellow uh, South Los Angelino and also a fellow Trojan. Thank you. It's good to see that it's beautiful. And um, I'm just happy that that you're building it here in our community. Because I think sometimes that's the other thing that happens is people end up building it elsewhere. And they have their reasons. It's, I'm not against people building in other places, but it's beautiful when we can have things here. And I hope something like this gets replicated across the country. I hope we get to see more poetry libraries and safe havens and um, beautiful spaces to grow your hobby or your career in poetry. Me too. Me too. So before we go, um, first tell us how we can support you. And then I would love to close out with at least one of your poems. Okay. All right. <laughs> so as, as far as supporting me, um, so if you go to, to, to Sims library of poetry.org, um, the library is entirely supported by members. Um, we have a campaign called the 44 campaign where people, uh, contribute $44 a month to keep the library open. And so we have enough members to to pay the rent, the gas, the lights, the electric, you know. So we're currently still raising money so we can hire people from the neighborhood, you know, to to work at the library. Employing the employing the community is another one that's just extremely important. Thank you for that. Yeah, and so all the people who work in the library right now are from the neighborhood. Um, so and that the history came from. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, when he opened the first library in the country, he got a bunch of his friends to put in 44 shillings. And then they took that money and got the first building. It was called the Library Company of Philadelphia. And it was the first, one of the first libraries in the world where you could lend books out. Prior to that, the libraries were reference only, like you couldn't check out books. And so, and they also only bought books that people from their community wanted. And so that's something that we do at our library, too. Love that. Yeah, ask people, what, what, what books y'all want us to buy? And then we buy them so that they can come check them out. Well, I hope everyone goes to your website and yeah. supports you and supports what you guys are doing. Um, and also, I, I want you guys to visit, bring some young people, bring people from your community to check it out. Um, what poem do you have for us? You know, uh, since we're in CD8, I wanted to bring this, like, super-duper L.A. poem. I love it. Uh, and see, because you went to USC, you probably remember there were all these people that moved here, you know, like from other parts of the country and, and sometimes the world. And they, and they had all these complaints, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, the traffic, oh, the food. And we would listen, but in our head, we'd be like, please shut up. I just told him to shut up, but I got you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you did. So, um, so this is a poem that I wrote just ha- that has to do with, uh, you know, just having pride being born and raised in L.A. Uh, so this poem is called, If You're Not From L.A., Don't Talk Trash About L.A. Unless You At LAX On Your Way Home. <laughs> Miss me with your about the horrors of LA traffic, about how LA pizza sucks compared to New York pie. Miss me with all your complaints about the high rent and the high gas and the high teenagers and the high bus drivers. I don't want to hear any more whining about how LA apartments have no air conditioning like the ones in Vegas or Chicago or Mississippi where you came from. 
And yes, I know the 405 is a parking lot. And yes, I know the smog is thicker than your leg hairs. And yes, I'm sure there is no gang violence in Alaska, but this is our home. And some of us were born and raised in this palm tree gutter you have come to hate so much. Got all our groceries from the liquor store and chili cheese nachos from ice cream trucks as our dinner. Recipients of that good LAUSD, no child left behind while we were left behind education. Eating fish sticks and chocolate milk off county lunch tickets. I still got blisters on our, on our feet from not wearing two pairs of socks at World on Wheels. Still got leftover tokens in my pocket from buses and Chuck E. Cheese birthday parties. Still got no red or blue clothes in my closet. Middle school boys asking me, where are you from? Knowing both of us were born at King Drew or the Kaiser on Cadillac. What you know about only having one person in your whole family who owns a house? Fiending for a backyard while you do your homework on the balcony. My mama taught me, never go to someone else's house and complain. I know you miss the sweltering heat of Georgia, the sweet, sweet tornadoes of Oklahoma, and the five feet of snow bearing your dad's Ford Fiesta. But you insulting my city is something I can't condone. So if we so fake, take your real ass home. I don't want to hear it. Matter of fact, flip that. I would love to hear all your complaints as long as you are at the kiosk check-in, printing out your boarding pass and tagging your luggage, or even outside as I give you that take your ass home goodbye hug and say, text me when you land. But if you reluctantly decide to stay, please don't talk trash about L.A. unless you are at LAX on your way home. Love it. I think that's uh, all we have time for, but I really, really appreciate the whole. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I, again, encourage everyone to check out the Sims Library of Poetry on Florence and Crenshaw. Give me the address one more time. 2702 West Florence. I want to also have this in the show notes, but I'm, I do both to make sure because y'all going to get there. Y'all going y'all gonna to get there. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I really I'm a strong believer that poetry is an important part of our art. It's also an important part of our storytelling. And it's a beautiful thing to know that you have something here in South L.A. for us to be able to have that space to be creative yeah. or just have the space to relax. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's been a blessing and uh, I'm looking forward to all the great work that your podcast is doing. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.